up? Welcome back to another Break It Down for Brackets podcast. Today's topic is something that I know pretty much zero about. It's parenting. Not just parenting, though, parenting a chronically ill child. So I brought in some specialists. I have three parents here. And this conversation is led by my friend Jamie. Jamie Hello, how are you? Good. I'm Jamie. I'm a mom. Uh, I've got two kids, one of which is a type 1 diabetic with some inattentive ADHD problems. So I like to say that all of our parents are badasses. Uh, parenting the chronically ill child is, makes you a little more badass, just because you got a little more challenges than you would normally. And so my guests today are Stephanie. Hi, Hi. Stephanie and Jeanette. Hello. Hi. So, so Stephanie, let's talk about you. Um, I have a, he's 10 now, oh, double digit mom, that's a little scary. <laughs> and um, he pretty much been sick all his life up until age three. Um, he had been diagnosed with a nut allergy, had respiratory issues, he had acid reflux, just all kinds of craziness. And at three, things really changed. He got an ear infection that never went away. It turned out to be luckily a benign tumor, but that has caused a myriad of problems. And we just last August had surgery number seven or eight. I've actually stopped counting how wow. many surgeries have been involved in all of this. And then right after that, he um, was diagnosed with ADHD and attentive type and borderline autism spectrum disorder. So that just adds to the craziness. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you have any other kids or just, just no, one? just one. We just have one kid and my husband, Greg. That's just the three of us at home, so. Okay, yeah. All right. And what about you, Jeanette? Let's talk about you. Sure. So I'm new to West Virginia. My husband is from Shepherdstown. Okay. Um, Where are you from? I'm from Baltimore, like Towson area. Um, We moved here two years ago, and I'm loving it. I love the small town life. Um, We have a three-year-old, Macy. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes last summer um, during COVID, which kind of compounded everything. Made a lot harder for in-person support, doctor visits where they only wanted one parent. Um, you know, all the little things have just been a lot harder, I would say, because <laughs> of, of the pandemic. Right, right, right. So I actually have two kids. I have a, a grown son. Uh, some of you know Richard. Hey, son, if you're listening. And then I have a 15-year-old uh, who thinks she knows everything. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes um, when she was 11, so we're three and a half years in. I miss the whole fun of parenting a small child uh, <laughs> with diabetes. I'm sure that comes with its own unique challenges. Oh, yes. And, um, of course, I, I don't know if they do this for the young, but I'm going to segue here a little bit into t- talking about the kid conditions. Yeah. So when you have a kid that's 11 and they're diagnosed with a chronic health condition, they basically will test you for everything under the sun. So she also has celiac. Um, yeah, we did the endoscopy and went through all that fun stuff. Uh, Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder, not to be confused with type 2, which is metabolic. And so with the autoimmune disorder, type 1 kids are also susceptible to celiac and hypothyroidism, which they call the hypo, what they call the autoimmune trifecta. So if they have two, they're most likely going to develop the third one at some point in their lives. So we're monitoring for that right now. Luckily, she doesn't have it, but we do have the type 1. And also what they tell you is get your kid into therapy because that, a chronic diagnosis uh, is something that you know adults have a problem dealing with so add compound that with a kid whose brain's not fully developed and can't comprehend necessarily all the things that they have to do so they say get you into therapy so we've been through therapists for about three years and we just got the inattentive adhd diagnosis ourselves so um 
some other things about type 1 diabetes, maybe you can chime in here. Sure. So the pancreas doesn't work. That's, that's just, it just simply doesn't make insulin. And insulin, well, you need it to live. So um, pretty important. Pretty important stuff. Uh, and so, you know, we've heard all the myths. And she's so funny when she's talking to people that don't know a lot about it. And some of her teachers are even like, can you tell the class about this? Because they know that she knows more than they do. And so, you know, she'll have sugar. She'll have the snacks that they have to have. And, well, should you be eating that? She gets that from her friends all the time. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yes, she kind of needs it, especially if she goes low. So, yeah, so what about been, you? We've been teaching our, um, my daughter, you know, that she can have the extra snacks when she goes low. So she came up to me the other day and said, my sugar is high. I can have apple juice. And I was like, no, <laughs> your sugar is high. You need insulin. But she's trying. You know, she's three. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. She just did her first finger stick on herself last week, which was really exciting. Nice. Um, we've been trying to, you know, involve her in her care as much as possible. Um, explain things to her so that she knows what's going on, but in a three-year-old way, which is also a little hard to break it down sometimes. Right. Um, you know, it was a huge adjustment at first. It was pretty upsetting for everybody. And it took her a couple months to kind of figure out, you know, like this is my new routine. And now she just doesn't even think twice about it. I tell nice. her I need to check her finger. It's time for insulin. And she, you know, pulls down her pants and she's ready to go. So <laughs> so are you guys doing a continuous glucose monitor or are you doing finger sticks? Um, we're doing both. Both. Because, okay. um, so she's still honeymooning. So her pancreas at times will put out its own insulin. Um, but there's no rhyme or reason for that. Exactly. Um, which makes everything super fun. Um, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, you can get the right dose and, you know, the right timing and everything, and it just goes to hell on you. <laughs> it just doesn't work out. So using injectable pens, does she have a pump yet? No pump. Um, I'm really on the fence about that myself, just because there's a lot of things that can go wrong with it. I know it's really mm -hmm. helpful for a lot of people, but she has a lot of... Um, like sensory sensitivity and just okay. doing the glucose monitor has been like a huge challenge that we've just kind yeah. of gotten over. So I think one thing at a time is probably good, especially for younger kids that are going to be dealing with this for their whole life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do the insulin pump yet either. We are three years out and our endocrinologist still says Kate has some of the best numbers that she's ever seen. And so, yeah, oh, she's I'm like, I'm going to have to talk to you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I wish that I knew what the trick was because I, I honestly don't know. Every but day is so different. Yeah. We, we do fight every, every day. I but feel like yes. we need a podcast just on diabetes. Yeah. I mean, I could do that. Yeah. I'm saying like I have a lot of questions <laughs> that don't have to do with parenting okay. about what you're talking about, but I, this is not the place to ask them. So right. I think that'd be good for the future. Okay. We can, yeah, that would we be cool. We can tuck that in our back pocket. Right. And then... You guys should share some tricks with each other that's worked because hers is a little one and yours is a little bit older. Right. What yep. are some tricks that you've come up with? Am, am I jumping ahead? You're jumping ahead. Right on. <laughs> you tried. You tried. All right. Well, so, watch me turn my volume back down. So, so Stephanie, tell me about uh, Colin. So let me see if I get this right. Cholesteatoma? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about that. Um, so you said, was he born with that? Oh, we think so. The okay. doctors think so because at age three, when he when they found out that that's what it was, um, they're like they don't grow this big in children this small. It oh, takes wow. years for them to grow this way. So he more than likely was born with this. Um, and what that is, it's basically um, skin that builds up in your inner ear and it forms like a cyst and it just continues to grow and grow and grow and collect material over time. And his had 
they originally he had an ear infection. It busted his eardrum. He got really sick to the point where antibiotics weren't working. We were doing um, compound pharmacies, which oh, if wow. you don't know what those are, they, they're like Dexter's laboratory and they make up these weird compounds and then you go pick them up and your insurance doesn't pay for it because that's experimental stuff. And so um, finding compound pharmacies is also difficult. Um, so we did some of that and finally we referred to um, an ENT specialist in Chantilly and they did a CAT scan. We weren't even home from the CAT scan from Fairfax and they called back and said, you have to bring him back to our office and then we're admitting you to the hospital. And of course as a parent you freak out because they say surgical biopsy and you're like, oh, that's, that's scary fun. stuff yeah. right there. MRIs and surgical biopsies on three-year-olds is pretty scary. Yeah, that's terrifying. And so we took him back. We found out when we took him back to the office that day that he was deaf. In both ears, he wasn't hearing like anything, which we did not realize. We're like, oh, wow. oh that explains loud, loud, loud everything. <laughs> um, we he got the MRI, and the doctor would not talk to me. And she said, "Your specialist will be in in a little bit, and you're going to go home tonight." And we're like, immediately heart sank because something serious is wrong. Um, and that's when the doctor said he has cancer. And I, the whole world, just went blank. And I never heard another word the doctor said after that. And I finally had to say to her did you just say my child had cancer? And she's like, yes, we're pretty sure that's what this is in here. And she said, you can see it's grown very close to his brain and his facial cranial nerve. And we can't tell if it's attached itself to those things. So we're not going to biopsy it because it has to come out pretty quickly because you got serious thing going on here. My friend was standing there with me. Greg had Colin in the hospital playroom. And luckily, she heard everything else the doctor said because I heard nothing. Like, she didn't explain <laughs> to me what was going on because you hear cancer and you're just, like, floored. Um, we had difficulty getting um, an appointment with the next specialist who was a neuro ENT. And I begged the lady at the office, like, they said my child has cancer. I'll come anywhere at any time. Right, right. So that prompted, you know, a three-day later trip to Fairfax for a 7 a.m. appointment, which they said he either had rhabdomyosarcoma or a condition called Langerhans syndrome, which would have required um, a year's worth of chemotherapy oh, wow. if he had that. So he had to have x-rays of his entire body. So we held a three-year-old down while he screamed while two x-ray technicians x-rayed every single part of his body. They forgot the tip of his thumb, and we had to start over again. And I'm like, you've got <laughs> oh to be And she goes, he could have a tumor on the tip of his thumb. And I'm like, I don't think he does. But they were adamant that they had to get a picture of it. Um, it wasn't Langerhans. Thank goodness he had no tumors anywhere else. But then it was, okay, we're not going to know what this is until we do surgery. So we took him to Fairfax on... July 7th of that year, he was, you know, three and a half, and we sent him back into surgery and had no clue what the outcome was going to be. Like, he could have been paralyzed. He could have been all sorts of things coming out of surgery. So it was really difficult as a parent to send your three-year-old into surgery and not have any clue what the outcome was going to be. Right, and when they right. finally, like four hours later, came out, and the doctor was like, you're not going to believe this. And we're like, well, at this point, we're going to believe anything. And he goes, it was a benign cholesteatoma. But it was big, and it destroyed his entire ear, and he's going to be deaf. And we're like, we'll take it. It's like, wow. You know, when you're yeah, like, we'll take deafness over. That's dodging a very yeah, huge bullet. dodging a huge bullet. And the doctor was like, I was absolutely shocked. They were convinced it was something way more serious. 
based on the size and how young he was. Wow. So we consider ourselves super lucky. Right. And so he's he's hearing impaired both ears. One ear. The One other ear. ear was able to be fixed through some other minor tube surgeries and some other things. Oh, nice, nice. But, you know, the other, the left ear where the, the tumor was, we've had a second tumor that was a surprise, um, and we've had several other reconstructive surgeries, um, and we're slated for surgery number eight or nine again this summer, which will be the third Oof. summer in a row he's had surgery. <laughs> so is it a recurring cholesteatoma or are um, these different types of tumors? The second one was a cholesteatoma. They had no clue it was there. They actually had gone in two summers ago when he was eight to do a, re a big reconstructive surgery to hope restore some of his hearing. And when they got in there... They were like, oh, there's another one, and it's, it had grown as big as the first one, and this one had, liter had literally grown through a bone that they were going to use to do the bone grafts with. Oh, so wow. they had to use all cadaver bone, which they don't think. They think all the cadaver bone has dissolved because of an infection in the surgery site. Okay. So, yeah. So Awesome. So, <laughs> so Stephanie touched on something that I hadn't really... <laughs> put down as a question because it's hard to talk about but we'll talk about diagnoses mm -hmm. and so we know how Colin was diagnosed with his um Kate was 11 and <clears throat> she was uh you know active kid she's swimming she starts drinking a lot and I'm thinking hmm now a little bit of background on me is I have a lifetime of experience with type 1 diabetic, uh, type 1 diabetes. My dad was a type 1 diabetic. My brother's a type 1 diabetic. I had gestational diabetes with both pregnancies. So I know, uh, you know, quite a fair amount about this disease. But we didn't have any girls, right, with the symptoms. And so, you know, I looked at the drinking a lot. And I'm like, well, she's swimming all the time. She was on swim teams. So she's swimming four days a week. We're outside. We're running around. Of course, she's going to be thirsty. And then there were the increased trips to the bathroom. And I'm like, well, she's drinking a lot, right? So naturally, she would be using the bathroom. And she says at 11, she's like, mom, I have a yeast infection. Or she was describing the symptoms. Right. One. And I'm like, okay. So I did all the over-the-counter stuff. It worked. She went to camp She come for a week. She comes back. She's like, I'm still having the same problems. I was a week before I was scheduled to go out of town on a race. I was like, okay, I'll take you to urgent care. We'll get some prescriptions. We'll get this done. And the first thing they did at urgent care was test her blood sugar. And I knew when they stuck her finger what they were doing. And I was like, it didn't even occur to me. I was like, why are you doing that? And I'm thinking this in my head. And they, her sugar was over 200 at that point. It wasn't that high. But it was high enough that they said, when did she last eat? And when they said, when I told them it had been a few hours, they said, you need to take her to the hospital. And when they told me that there in the urgent care, I knew what the problem was. I took her to the hospital. I called my husband and I was like, okay, so I'm just taking her. I'm not coming to get you. I'm not going home. I'm taking her straight to Lansdowne and we're going to get this solved. And when we're in the Lansdowne ER and the doctor told me what she had, I went into the bathroom and I lost my entire shit for like 10 minutes. Oh, absolutely. I was just like, this is my fault. It was devastating. It's, it's a hard thing. It's, it's a very hard thing to deal with when your kid is diagnosed with something like that. Why is it your fault? It's genetic, right? It's my bad genes that led to this. And that was a very real thing for me to have to process. Okay. So, yeah. So, so the diagnosis, the diagnosis day is not something that I like to talk about very often. So, and we're, um, we're back. Okay. So we're talking about diagnosis days. So Jeanette, tell me about Macy's uh, diagnosis day. Yeah. So a lot of what you were saying is actually bringing up a lot of memories. Um, it was a Tuesday morning. I'll never yep. forget it. You know exactly what you were wearing. Of course, I didn't eat breakfast that day. It was a long day. Um, so my daughter had, she was two and a half. 
she had been doing a lot of the same things as Jamie's daughter. Um, you know, drinking a lot of water, going to the bathroom a lot. Luckily, she was already potty trained, so we noticed that she was going to the bathroom a lot more. She was wetting the bed at night, which, you know, she hadn't done in months and months. So kind of knew something was up. I was hoping it was just a phase. We started kind of restricting her water, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. But, right. I mean, we had no idea. Um, so I'm not going to feel guilty about that. But, um, you know, at the time, that's not what her body needed. She needed that water. Um, but my husband kind of pushed me to call the pediatrician. I told them what was going on. You know, how much water should she be drinking a day? And they said, well, that may be a sign for diabetes. And I was floored. I had absolutely no idea. You know, we started Googling the symptoms. Everything was matching. My heart yep. was pounding. I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. So next morning, luckily my husband had been working from home. I took her to the pediatrician. He waited in the car. They did the finger stick. She was over 300. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which, you know, was high enough that That's they high. knew. <laughs> Luckily, I got her to go to the bathroom there, which was a feat in itself because she hates public bathrooms. Another one of our fun sensory things that we don't like to do. Oh, um, sensory issues. Yeah. It just makes everything super fun. Yes, it um, does. So, yeah, that first finger stick and got everything underway. They told us, you know, don't go home. Go right to the ER in Fairfax, which mm-hmm. was you know, over an hour away. We didn't have anything with us. I didn't have my phone charger, you know, nothing. Um, so luckily my husband's parents live right down the road. They broke into our house, got a few things, met us at the gas station. We drove to Fairfax and stayed there for three days. Um, yeah, it was just, that was the first day of a new, new adventure. I'll say the new, the new normal as I like to call it. Yeah. Um, so, so in parents, you know, I mean, we can't obviously ask, well, how is it different in parenting a, I'm going to use quotes here, air quotes, normal kid versus a kid with the condition. Um, you know, you figure out cheats along the way, especially for things like type one diabetes. Like I'm sure you figured out the cheats about, oh, they get a lot of protein and they can eat a little more carbs because it will slow the absorption. Right. For Kate, ice cream does not actually spike her as high as other treats do. So we always make sure that we keep ice cream in the house. Um, I also know you'll, you'll discover this hormones can have interesting effects on blood glucose levels. And so I've been I watch that. for that. Um, and when her sugars run high, I'm like, uh-huh, I know what's coming next week. Um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> Luckily we're only three, so yes. we have some time. And so do you notice with her lows, like, I mean, cause three is the great age with all the tantrums, right? <laughs> oh yes. Uh, and how much worse are they now when she's experiencing a low? So she actually is asymptomatic for her lows, which is really terrifying um, because she can just, she can drop down to like 50 and just be absolutely normal and playing and like we have no idea. So that's Ah. where the glucose monitor comes in. It's a lifesaver when it works. Technology is helpful when it works. Um, But yeah, it's a little device that she wears in her arm. We change it every 10 days if it lasts that long. Usually it doesn't, unfortunately. Oh, really? No, we've not had good luck with that. Oh. Um, so that's just another fun piece of it. But we've gotten to the point where she's doing better with the changes and everything, um, taking it on and off. That used to be pretty bad. Yeah, um, pretty traumatic. Yeah, but right now we're still, you know, her levels are, we're doing better. She's about like 70% in range, which is good for her age. We still have a lot of highs, a lot of lows, kind of yeah. try to hang out in the middle where we can. Um But yeah, it's just, we thought, we actually got her tested for autism. 
um, because she, before diagnosis, she had been having like a lot of sensory, you know, things that she didn't like a lot of, she was having a lot of tantrums, like more than I'm, you know, she's my first kid. So I didn't know, like, is this normal? It doesn't seem normal. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, was not normal because her, okay. her blood sugars were all over the place. We had no idea. But the um, sensory issues aren't caused by, are they worse when she's high or low or? No, we just, we didn't know. That okay, was like kind right. of leading up to it. Yeah. What, what about Colin's sensory, sensory um, issues? The hearing causes a lot of sensory issues. We, we actually experience, you watch those videos on social media where babies get hearing aids for the first time and they're like, we actually experienced that. Like we didn't, wow. you don't realize, we didn't realize how deaf he was until they put that hearing aid on and his is computer program from the audiologist. So he can't change any of the settings. He can't turn the volume up and down. It's completely controlled at their office when we go there via like Bluetooth or something. And when she turned that thing on, he was like, it was like, wow, what, huh. is, what is it? But then it opened up this whole new world of all of a sudden you have a three-year-old who can't won't go to the bathroom in public because he yep. can't stand the sound of automatic flushing toilet and hand dryers. Yes. Because oh, yeah. they're different. He's never heard them before the way that they should be heard. So they're super loud. He can't stand the blender. You turn the blender on. He gets super angry when you run the blender. Like, make him smoothie just makes him angry. Like, <laughs> the vacuum cleaner that makes him angry. Like any chirping noises like if a smoke alarm battery starts out you gotta change it immediately um the fire alarm at school was a big issue um and part of it is he couldn't hear these things and then we get this borderline spectrum disorder um which we're pretty sure he's fully on the spectrum he needs another assessment but it's four hour long or in the middle of a pandemic and we kind of don't want to take him back and have him deal with all that right now right um but he just you know, those little things really set him off and he retreats. Mm -hmm. um, he can't, he doesn't like eating dinner at the table with a lot of people he's unfamiliar with. He just retreats. Um, so his sensory issues kind of really affect his navigating the world sometimes. He deals pretty well with it. Um, he handles it pretty well and he controls it a lot better um, than some kids would. Um, and I think that's because we worked with him a lot on, you know, if this bothers you, we get that, but it's okay. We need to figure out a way to overcome this. Right. Um, so, yeah. So did he throw a lot of fits when he was younger? Yeah, Cause he couldn't he would, verbalize like, at, like what's like, wrong. At holidays, I drug him away from the table and up the steps physically before <laughs> screaming and yelling with our family, our entire family, you know, 10, 12 people looking at me like I was a nut job because I wouldn't force him to sit there and eat dinner with them. And I'm like, you guys don't get it. This is really hard for him. Right. Um, right. And even now, we, not a lot like it's funny because I come here and I publicly say hey my kid has ADHD and he's on the autism spectrum probably and not a lot of people know that because we haven't like told a lot of people and we finally about four months after the diagnosis started telling some family and they reacted really strangely like one family member was like oh I figured that's what was wrong with them which was kind of like what do you mean you figured that's what was wrong with them? <laughs> you know my mom was really upset because she felt sorry for him. Right. And so it's trying to get them to understand how to react to him when he has these kind of meltdowns and tantrums. Cause sometimes people think you're bad parenting because you're not like, get up and behave. Right. But really 
I have to let my kid get this out of his system. Give him 10 minutes and then we'll be back to normal, you know? Yeah, there's so much going on under the surface that people yeah. just don't understand or don't want to deal with or don't have time for, especially mm -hmm. in public. People feel uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. Want, they want it to stop. I was lucky in that my kid was not diagnosed with, I mean, any of her issues until, you know, she was 11. And, you know, at first the therapist was like, she has anxiety and depression. And then this new therapist that she's with, we've had five therapists in a year and a half. Oh it's, my goodness. That alone is another podcast. Like the burnout in the mental health field is ridiculous right now. And I feel for all of them. Um, but it's hard when, you know, your, your doctor is like, go get this help for your kid. And then your kid's like, I don't want to do this anymore because I don't want to tell another person my trauma for the sixth time. And, um, but she's good now. We found someone, she is actually the CEO of the counseling service that we use. So she's not going anywhere unless the business fails. Um, but she has worked with her for about three months and then she's like, I don't think that the, the problem is not the anxiety. The problem is something deeper. And then, so she says she has ADHD inattentive type and it's caused like she believes that to be the underlying cause of the anxiety and depression. But ever since Kate was little, and maybe this is a function of the fact that we had, she had an older sibling. So we're always big on use your words. What is the matter with you? So when she would scream or cry or whatever, okay, tell me why, what is, what is the matter? And sometimes it would be as simple as there's a tag bothering her or my daughter is incredibly resistant to change. So you moved something in my room. Now the room is a mess. I, maybe I did move something. I don't know, but getting her to have us like use our words now we still do a lot of tantrums i mean it's sometimes really difficult to parent a teenager and go what is the teenage uh opposition what is the adhd or what is your sugar because i have nail polish on her wall right now due to a low which she insists was not caused by the low and i'm like okay well we're just gonna have to agree to disagree <laughs> on that issue because mm -hmm. she was mad at me and she threw some nail polish against the wall and it wasn't closed and i said well there you go change we i get the mm -hmm. like we can't one of our big things is um we can't say we're going to on saturday mornings we kind of you know during the pandemic we've had a routine we go to black dog coffee we go to dunkin donuts and then we do any other errands that we might need to do oh we swapped it up and we went to the bank first uh-uh you have to go in the exact order you yes. said you were going or else he doesn't understand why. And trying to, okay. trying to reason with him is like, and I'm like, oh my goodness. It's interesting to hear you guys talk about um, how you know something is wrong with your child with their diabetes. Because the only way we know something is usually wrong with Colin's ear is it smells horrific. It mm. smells absolutely, you'll sit near him and you'll be like, oh, you have an ear infection. You wow. smell today. Okay. Like the other night, he was sitting on the couch with me and I'm like, you need a shower. And then I'm like, mm, no, that's not typical 10-year-old boy. I've been outside sweating. <laughs> and then I start looking in his ear and I'm like, mm, you need some eardrops tonight because yeah. which he absolutely hates and oh. does not like to get because, you know, seven years of people squirting eardrops in your ear practically every night of your life. Um, yeah. gets old after a while but I could tell because I'm sitting next to him and I'm like oh that's a horrific smell you have going on there and we we worry about that because we're worried like other kids are going to be like dude you stink and it's not something he can control and we have this right. conversation with the doctor all the time like when is this going to stop and they can't tell us when so, it's going to stop <laughs> well maybe one thing about going into middle school is they all smell <laughs> 
<laughs> so maybe they won't notice because for some reason kids hit 10 11 12 they don't want to bathe anymore. I don't yeah. know what that's about. But, Maybe they'll um, all be smelly and no one will notice that he has an extra odd smell about him sometimes. So one of the things that, that helps with us in avoiding the meltdown is allowing them to make decisions as much as they're capable of. So like that would maybe, does that help with Colin when mm-hmm. he makes the decisions, when you keep the routine kind of the same? Yeah. Anything else help with meltdown avoidance there? Um, just a good forewarning of, hey, this is what we're, you know, this yeah. is what's going to happen today. Um, and then not, and this is the issue with other people, not with us, because we know. We never tell him, sometimes we avoid telling him things in advance, because if it's not something that's a 100% guarantee, like if it's an outdoor activity or you're going somewhere, but plans could change because of weather or whatever, we never tell him too far in advance because then he's dead set on it occurring. And then right. when it doesn't occur, it's like traumatic. Um, but getting other people to not say, yeah, you can do this. Go ask your mom and dad. And then we're like, no, he can't do that. Like right. that's really hard because now we have to be the bad guy. And then other people don't always understand why we're saying no. No, that's not okay for him mm-hmm. to do. Um, so getting other people to understand, please speak to us before you speak to him, right, is really right. important. Um, because if you say yes and we have to say no, we have to deal with the backlash of you being like, oh, well, why isn't it? Okay? And then let people be like, especially family, why isn't it okay? Well, it's not okay because, right, right, you know, whatever for whatever reason. So yeah. So what about for Macy? What do we do to avoid meltdowns? Now, I will tell you with the decision making. So when Kate was first diagnosed, she didn't want to do, she pretty much took the fingers. I mean, she was 11. She pretty much started to do the finger sticks from the beginning, but she did not want to give herself insulin. And so what we did was, okay, you're not on a time limit here, except that when you, you know, I think at that point she was in middle school. So the nurse was still assisting with the injections. So I was like, you can do this at your own pace and whatever you're ready for you do. And so, you know, for a long time, I was giving her the injections and then she got comfortable with the mealtime injections and I was only giving the bedtime. And then before she went to camp, that was an incredible uh, kind of motivator for her was the next summer after she was diagnosed, she wanted to go back to Girl Scout camp. And I'm like, then you can't go unless you can give yourself your nighttime shot because I won't be there and they're not trained to. And so she was like, okay, in about two weeks before camp, she goes, I think I'm ready. Wow. And so I watched her for a cut until she went to camp. And then when she got back, she's a pro at this now. And um, so so it's good that Macy's starting to like stick her finger. It's just Yeah, she's definitely like becoming more involved. You know, we'll ask her where she wants her injection. She always picks the same place. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the doctor said that's okay right now. Right. You know, she's making the decision. We're not like overusing the area. You can kind of space it out. Yep. So it's fine. Um, so she does pick the same spot every time. So we've been doing that for a couple of weeks and actually it's been really good. Good. Um, we've been able to do more stuff while she's sleeping than we did initially. It used to wake her up, you know, like traumatic screaming, crying every time we tried to do a finger oh, stick wow. while she was sleeping. Um, but now she kind of just like rolls over and doesn't care. Which is really nice. Um, are, are you still having to do the middle of the night kind of finger sticks, or do you just check the Dexcom? Uh, some of both. Okay. Um, yeah, our night times have been a little rough lately. We kind of had like two up all nighters in a row. So oh wow! Ho- hoping tonight's a little smoother. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you know she's definitely more used to it than she used to be. Um, given her options, you know, about what she wants to eat, I think we were like pretty restrictive initially. 
just because we weren't sure like what was safe or you know like what was going to spike her too much and now you know she can have treats as long as it's like with her meal and with her insulin and stuff like that um so i think that's going a lot better too so i think just as a family we're starting to figure it out a little bit more it's been about eight months what is the go-to for her to combat lows um oranges oranges loves an orange yep so so it's really fun having a diabetic that's a really picky eater because we've had to change out our go-tos more than once uh we went from smarties to um gummy bears to m&ms and she's like no i'm tired of this and you know even just trying to keep them eating on a regular schedule is sometimes just impossible Yeah, sometimes she'll be like, well, I'm not hungry, and I know it's because she doesn't want her injection. Right. And I'm like, well, you still got to eat. We got to get this done. Um, a timer's been really helpful. She likes to watch the timer go down, um, so that's been good. Nice. More TV time than I'd like to admit to, but right now, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Exactly. So. Exactly. So what is the toughest thing uh, parenting a kid with a chronic condition, do you think? Constantly being at the hospital and watching other kids with chronic conditions or at the doctor's office. I mean, I remember the first time Colin was in the hospital, um, we, and they told us he had cancer. There was a little girl in the playroom who had cancer and it was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be what's wrong with our child. And I watched the mom who was angry at this little girl who was probably no more than 10. She was tiny. Um, look at the little girl didn't want to eat. Um, and she, the mom was like, fine, don't eat. And they're going to put in a feeding tube and you can deal with it. Wow. And I was like, it was heartbreaking because I'm like, oh my gosh, is this going to be my reality? And the little girl was like, well, I'll go eat a bagel. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'll eat a bagel to shut you up kind of thing. And so, that, so seeing other sick kids is really hard. Um, Fighting insurance, that's hard. <laughs> and yes. we had several. Our first surgery to have the tumor removed was denied. It was deemed medically unnecessary. Wow. And um, I had a curt conversation with Anthem in Richmond about what part of removing a tumor <laughs> from a three-year-old so he can maybe hear or not hear is deemed medically unnecessary. And they finally approved the surgery but not would not approve for him to stay in the hospital. They would only approve it as an in and out surgery. Wow. And going into a surgery like that, not knowing what the outcome was, even our surgeon, even our doctor was PO'd and called the insurance company and was like, these people live like, you know, hour and a half with no traffic from Fairfax. This uh, yeah. is a three-year-old and I have no clue what I'm going to find when I get in there. And they're like, oh, well, he can stay for 23 hours, but at the 23-hour mark, we consider them inpatient and then we no longer pay. So literally, the nurse was like, he's got to eat this popsicle in the next two hours because you got to go. Wow. I mean, and wow, you're like, wow. eat the popsicle quick. They're not going to let you go unless you <laughs> eat the And that's hard for a three-year-old. Yeah. And then this, the last, luckily, all the other surgeries have been small enough surgeries that we weren't worried about um, super complications. Like the last surgery was 45 minutes, but the one before that, when they found the second tumor, he was in surgery for four hours. So he's under anesthesia with a laser probe in his forehead. They've removed bone. They've put in bone. They've taken out a tumor. They've done all sorts of craziness. They've lasered him and we can't stay at the hospital. Wow. And then Greg threw a fit and they let us stay for observation. But the doctor wasn't nice to us. The doctor, the hospital doctor, right. wasn't nice to us because we technically weren't supposed to be there. So she kept bringing in all these student doctors to look at our child and then take the bandage off, put it back on, take the bandage off. So when we got home from that surgery, he didn't speak to us for three days. 
Wow. And Greg Aww. was devastated because he was really upset. Like, he's mad at us. And right. Like, well, first of all, we didn't do a good job preparing him for the surgery. So I love hearing that you guys, Jeanette, include your daughter, Macy, and all of the stuff and you explain these things to her because as parents, that's one of the things that we had failed on prior to the last big surgery when he was eight was we didn't, we weren't really good at explaining like, hey, this is exactly what's going to happen and this is exactly what could happen afterwards. We were really bad at that because we're like, if we don't tell him, he won't have any anxiety about it and they'll just wheel him into surgery and wheel him back out and everything will be great. Yeah, we learned a hard lesson when he didn't speak to us for yeah. three days. We got the silent treatment. When you get a silent treatment from an eight-year-old, that's difficult. <laughs> um, and then he finally came around, and we, we yeah. apologized. We're like, we're really sorry that we didn't prepare you enough for right for all of that. Yeah, so that's important. If you have chronic illness, kid, you got to prepare them, people. You can't just be like, hey, we're going to the doctor today, and I'm not telling you what's happening. Exactly. Um, that's not okay. And we had to learn that the hard way. So now we're very upfront with him. Every doctor's appointment, every everything we don't we don't send them out of the room when they talk about surgery we don't send them out of the room when they talk about anything we're like you need to be here and you need to know this yeah yeah i think the hardest thing for the hardest thing in my opinion is um when they just want a day off and it's like that's not how it works you know she'll be so sad someday she's like i just wish i didn't have to worry about it today and i'm like i wish nothing more than that for you and you know i think that's where running kind of helps because if I'm tired and I'm only in like mile three and I've got, you know, four miles to go, I'm like, uh, okay, can't give up. So neither can you get your ass moving. And you know, so that's it. Cause they can't take a day off either. So yeah, that's huge. It's just, it's constant, you know, yeah. like I was just feeling really overwhelmed the other day about, you know, personal things and diabetes things and just kind of everything in general. And my husband was like, well, what's wrong? And I'm like, where should I start? You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, you just need a little break and you don't get that. And they don't get it either. Like you said, you know, this is, this is their life and you got to make it as positive as you can. And, you know, I try not to get upset in front of her because I don't mm -hmm. want her to think, you know, there's something wrong with her, you know, right. whatever. But I mean, all of our playing, we have like doctor supplies and like she gives me insulin and she gives her teddy bear insulin and, you know, nice. she'll check my mom's finger and, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's her life right now. Yeah. And it's, it's sad, but it's, you know, it's preparing her for her future. And so that's just it. When you want a break, I mean, it's hard enough for, for parents in general just to take that break, right? To realize I need to step back and do some self-care. But I think when you're, when you're chronic, when you have a chronically ill kid, you know, that's even harder. Like who's your, who's your go-to caregiver if it's not you? My husband. I mean, and if, and if you guys want date night, do you, do you have a sitter? No, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, since COVID we haven't had, I mean, his parents have been over a few mm -hmm. times and, you know, my parents come over, but they don't know, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to start and, you know, trying to train somebody how to do that. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. We're sending her to preschool in the fall and I'm just like, I don't know what that looks like. You know, her needs in five months could be a lot different than they are now. Yeah, they so. can. What about you? Um, we used to have two wonderful teenage babysitters that were friend. They were daughters of friends of ours, but now they both are away. One is, you know, grown up and has a job, and the other one is away in Pennsylvania at college. And we relied on Greg's mom a lot, but she's now, you know, on dialysis and has lots of other issues, so she's not able to do it. And then my parents do it, but then Colin experiences a lot of anxiety when he spends too much time with my mother. Uh oh. Um, be and we're not even sure what that, where the, all that comes from. And so we try to limit that unsupervised time 
But spotting someone that just understands all his quirks and isn't going to be like, this kid is bad. Like, you know, he's he's quirky. Like, he's right. a great kid. He's quirky. Um, but trying to find people who understand all his quirks and are like, oh, he, this is just how he is. Like, you know, this is, he's great and he's right. quirky. Um, but trying to find someone that understands all his quirks. And I think it worries us more than it probably would worry someone else. We probably could have someone come over and it would be fine. But we worry about how is he going to react to what happens if he has a meltdown and someone random babysitters here what is their reaction to him going to be so we don't we don't go out a lot without him right a lot so when we do it's like oh, kidless time so, so yeah yeah well i mean so kate was diagnosed at 11 um so we're and and so at that point you know if we want to do something if we wanted to do something pre-pandemic either her brother would come up and watch her or my mom is, you know, was available. And of course my mom married to my dad is familiar with diabetes. So we got lucky there. Um, now that she's older, you know, she can be left at home by herself. Now we still don't like to do that for a long period of time, especially considering where we live, it's kind of remote. And so we're like, yeah, we don't like the idea that she's far away from everything and by herself. So we just tend to not leave her alone that much. But our biggest problem right now is, you know, she is not in school. She's uh, at home. She's remote learning. She's been out of school now for a year with the pandemic. Um, she's not going to go back until the summer uh, in in-person school. And so trying to keep her safe, trying to keep us safe, um, but still trying to get her social socialization. And so she has a group of like four or five core friends and they've kept in touch over the internet and texting and stuff like that during the pandemic. They get together about once or twice a month. And it's, you know, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? Are you going to be outside or inside? Do you have your mask? Do you have snacks? And that is the biggest thing. It's just, she'll go, mom, don't follow me. You know, okay, fine. You're 15. I'm not going to follow you. Do you have snacks? No. Okay. Well now you need to tell me where you are and I have to find you in town when you run in the streets. <laughs> um, which isn't often, but they do it. She did it yesterday and I was like, where are you? Cause I need to come bring you your snacks. And what do you want? And oh, by the way, no chocolate isn't a good snack. It doesn't bring your sugar up fast enough. Right. You and have to take a suitcase with you anytime you leave the house. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and, and where's your water all the time? Where's your water? Yep. Yeah. Hydration is really hard for a three-year-old too. <laughs> you have to like your hearing aid. Your hearing aid. Yeah. The thing's expensive. And that's the other thing. Insurance doesn't cover hearing aids for children. Wow. Wow. It's not medically necessary. Like, sorry, you guys can saw my facial expression there. It was like the BDF <laughs> look. Um, yeah, it's I believe not it. medically necessary. We we one hearing aid is was almost three thousand dollars. Wow. So we guard that thing with our life. I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, we've had a we've had some insurance issues with the Dexcom, uh, you know, and having the endocrinologist write more than one letter to various insurance companies that yes this is medically necessary and then oh we're getting it here well now you have to get it here and then having that place stock it or oh you need you know a thousand dollars up front or you know we're only going to cover 40 percent of it or whatever and i think the thing that makes me mad have you have you dealt with like insurance changes and insulin changes because the new insurance doesn't cover what they were on so our insurance hasn't changed, but they've stopped covering our go-to pharmacy, which is really upsetting. Yeah. Um, because they know how to get what we need. The other pharmacy, we've had three or four like pretty major errors um, that you know are really important when you're dealing with 
medication and insulin and all that stuff. So you got to get it right. We could, we could do a whole separate yeah. podcast on insurance alone <laughs> yeah. and the problems with that. Plan on it. So, yeah. so how are we on time anyway? Let me do a time check. Five minutes. All right. 10 minutes. Just go ahead and do what you want. I'm enjoying this. Because again, I, I have the 504 plan section we could talk cool. about, but that That's is another fun. hour in and of itself. <laughs> That's a fun one. That's <laughs> what about um, what about support? That'd be a good topic. Too. So how oh, do you guys support right. each other? How do you find? How do you learn what you're supposed to learn? I mean, especially when you're in shock, kind of like mm-hmm. you were when you thought it was cancer. It's hard, you know. So what do you guys? How do you support each other? Are there groups? What's going on like that? Um. So I think. In the flurry of information that they gave us from the hospital, there is a support group locally. I'm not sure. Did they give you any of that information? No, they were just like, oh, you can find one locally, but I haven't really been okay. able to. That's terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just do it yourself. They just kind of kick you out when yeah. it's time to go. So we got a whole like backpack worth of stuff that I never actually went through. Uh, did they make you meet with the nutritionist? Uh, yes, and we had to request additional meetings because um, Macy's also celiac. Surprise! Yeah, um, which is super fun. Oh, that's um, I have that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. We can talk about that later too. A whole, a whole um, podcast on celiac. We can yeah. do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, they just they really don't give you a lot of support going out there. They say, you know, this is your follow up visit. You meet with the nutritionist, you know, one time. Luckily, we met with them twice before we left the hospital because mm-hmm. we didn't feel like what they gave us was adequate. Um, but then that's kind of it. And you go out there and you're supposed to count carbs and give insulin. And, and there's a thousand <sighs> other variables. Yeah. When we, we had our meeting with the nutritionist to check the box and I was like, yeah, I'm not coming back here. I have several friends that are nutritionists that actually had more than, I think it's what, one class or one semester in med school devoted to nutrition and that's it. So I'll talk to Vanessa. I'll talk to Laura. I'll talk to the people that I know that know more about this than you do to get, because it is more than, you know, counting carbs and giving injections. It's how does the hormones react? It's how does what she's eating, the whole meal, interact with her absorption of carbs and some carbs. Not all carbs are equal. Like, and she'll... I can imagine throwing celiacs in on top of that because that's yeah. a whole other, you just eliminated, like, you know, half. To you eliminate a lot of foods with celiac. Now, we're lucky now, I think, because there's a lot why, of. Why is that with celiac? Uh, they can't have gluten, and so gluten is in anything with Pretty a thickener, <laughs> and it's in everything made with wheat, and anything with a thickener, gravies, soy sauce has gluten. Why does soy sauce have gluten? Because it's malted barley, apparently, or malted oh. something, yes. Yeah, so you read, I mean, you're reading labels anyway for carbs, but now you're reading for ingredients and looking for gluten-free, and I think we're lucky now there's a lot more choices than there were even three years ago. Mm. Uh, in terms of substitutions that you can get for things that don't have gluten in them. But it is hard. And Kate is asymptomatic, so we do allow her cheat days where she can, you know, where she has gluten and stuff. And That's the second time you guys have said asymptomatic, and I don't yes. think I understand what <laughs> symptoms are then. So you guys you guys are saying that, assuming that oh. I know. And we are still breaking this down for brackets, and I have a thousand Asymptomatic, <laughs> meaning not showing outward signs of symptoms like you know hey no, my no, kid no. Di- i get what that yeah, means my... but i don't know what the diabetes symptoms oh are. okay yeah. so when when you have low blood sugar and that's classified as anything below 70 bgl right yeah that's what it is um 
if your number is reading below 70, you can sh you get shaky, uh, lightheaded, nauseous, um, angry, like kind of hangry type thing uh, until they get their sugars up. And Kate will get really pale. She actually is very symptomatic, very sensitive to it. And when her sugar starts dropping, if it's in the 80s or below, she'll get pale, she'll get shaky, and uh, she'll get nauseous, and she knows she has to eat. And it takes her 15 to 20 minutes to recover from the low. So she'll eat, but she'll still feel shaky um, for a while, even after her sugar has come up. So she'll feel shaky, but she doesn't show shaky. Mm-hmm. And your three-year-old... Yeah, so it's a little trickier um, because, like, if it happens during the night and I go in to kind of roll her over, she'll be soaked. I mean, she'll be absolutely soaked. And the doctors told us, oh, that has nothing to do with that, which is not true. Yes, it does. Because um, she was having that before, and we had no idea. She was having all these lows at nighttime. And until we had the monitor, you know, you couldn't see that. Right. Which is really terrifying because if they go too low, too low you can go into a coma. You know, you can you can die. There's all kinds of things that can happen. Um you can have complications. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to wake her up, you know, wake up a child who's dead asleep in the middle of the night, check their finger, put them on the potty, get them awake enough that they're going to drink a juice box. Then you have to go back in 10, 15 minutes later, check them again, make sure it's still coming up. If it didn't come up, all right, now we got to get the milk. I mean, this was last night. We were in like three or four times trying to just give wow. her enough yeah. to bring her up without shooting her, you know, over 300, which you don't want to do. So it's trying to find that delicate balance of how do you treat this without going overboard? How's her body going to react to this? And how much time is it going to take to show? But you both said they're asymptomatic. So Kate is not. To... Kate is not. Macy. Macy is. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that she's sweaty, but she can't wake me up to say, hey, I'm feeling low or, you know, I'm not feeling yeah. right. Something's going on. Those do mellow out. Kate doesn't yeah. have those dips. Do does Kate um, have to be checked at night also? So we checked her at night after her diagnosis, and yes, uh, my husband or I will still go in there in the middle of the night. Now we just check her receiver. She doesn't have to do a finger stick. Uh -huh. She's got the Dexcom, and we look at the number. All right. there, Dexcom. Dexcom <laughs> is the continuous glucose monitor that she uses. It's a, it's a little device that they use uh, arms, stomachs, or I've heard thighs, but we've never used it. We just do it Yeah. Yeah. Kate uses her stomach. So it sticks like a sticker? It's um, it's like a piece of wire. It's like a cannula that goes under your skin yep. and it it's... reads the fluid um, in your body, the interstitial fluid. And then it gives you a number that's close to your blood glucose number, but not the same. So it'll give you an idea. It's an estimate. Uh, it reads it every five minutes and it gives you a trend. So you can tell if the numbers are going up, if they're steady, or if they're going down. So that goes to your cell phone. Yes. Oh, yeah. nice. okay. goes to the cell phone. It also comes with the receiver. Um, so, yeah, we have two different means of uh, getting the results. Wow. Yep. That's kind, and of, it's, kind of awesome. It's amazing in terms of, yeah, being able to effectively manage their sugars. Right. And um, so we just go in and we check the receiver. Her, She's always trended steady. Like, she might have a dip at 4 in the morning, but it's not a dip that's ever been significant. So they will grow out of that. I don't know what age they grow out of that, but... Because I've had other uh, moms that I know who have had toddlers with uh, type 1, and they do grow out of it. Yeah, because last night, <laughs> as soon as we gave her a correction dose, she went into sensor error, which oh, means that the, it's not picking up the number anymore right. for one to three hours. So then you do have to go in and do the manual checks and figure out you know, what they're running. So as soon as I corrected her and I knew she was going to be plummeting down, no idea what her number was.
So do your kids, question for you. Yeah. Do your kids tell other people about what's wrong with them or on their own? Are they open about that with other people? Well, yours is three, so she's kind of probably chatty about it. But, like, do they, like, if they see the sensor, do, uh, do they tell their kids, hey, I have diabetes, you know, whatever? Yeah, I don't think she knows not to be, you know. Mm-hmm. We have, like, two friends that we go to the park with. And, you know, we eat lunch with them, so we check her finger, and they're very curious about that. And, you know, she'll tell them how to do it. And um, I think it's great that they're learning, too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, now, this, yeah, this, because Hold this, on, i got to bring it back. Okay. Okay. So you did not really find a support group when you found out. No. Okay. It's and, been And you didn't online. really either? So I think there were resources in there. I didn't look at them. I do happen to know that there is a camp for diabetic kids in well, West no, Virginia. I just mean like moms and But like other moms? No. I mean, I know that we were, we were on Facebook and she mentioned that when Macy got diagnosed, so I reached out to you. Let me know if you have any questions because I feel at this point I'm kind of old head at this. Bam. That's good. And I was going to ask you for sure, like, it seems like your boy's situation is kind of unique. No, like we didn't, there weren't any like, hey, these are resources. We literally, I literally had to come home and do my own research on both diagnoses, the both the cancer and the Langerhans, which isn't cancer, but it's treated like you still get the same treatment like you would for cancer. Right. I had to do research on those on my own and my husband was like, stop researching that. And I was like, no, I need to know what this, I need to know. And it, cause it was scary stuff. It, I mean, it was, oh my gosh, like. This is not okay. And they weren't, they they just dropped those, like, you know, hey, your kid has type 1 diabetes. Hey, your kid has <laughs> rhabdo, might have rhabdo, might sarcoma. Is that cancer? Yep. And then, you know, and then doctor walks away because they don't want to deal with your emotions. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not their job, really. And sometimes they're really bad at explaining right. what is going to happen. And I remember his first surgery, they sent in the student doctor to go over all the things that could happen during the surgery. And I was like, I feel bad for you because they gave you the shitty job. And he just looked at me and I was like, no, 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 no. The real doctor doesn't want to come and tell parents your child could have their face paralyzed after the surgery. They're making you do it. Wow. Wow. And I'm like, they're toughing you up, you know, and that's kind of what you get. They just come in and they just have this big list. And it's like, you get this, 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 and this as if I wasn't already traumatized enough. Yeah. You didn't even need to tell me any of that. I, I always feel like there's just like an organization for everything. So there's there's not like an organization for... I've not heard like for support for, you know, deaf kids um, type of thing. I've not heard of that in, you know, he's... I just thought there might be. I mean, we have... Everybody links up or something like that, but... We have Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Beyond Type 1. There's a lot of different organizations, but I don't know if there's any specifically for like parent resources. I mean, there's a lot of research and there's a lot of, you know, knowledge, but there's a dearth of like the emotion based, like you don't have, you know, my kids have been diagnosed with a chronic condition. Now I can go cry to my friends, but unless they've been there they're not going to get it. And there's really like, I don't think there's any support group, right. For kids with, with chronic conditions. You know, that word support group, it almost has like a negative connotation all the time. Right. And I feel like I need support groups all the time specifically in business and stuff like that so i had like a few business colleagues that i i chew their air and they chew mine and, we, and every once in a while we get together and have like a lunch and um it is extremely beneficial to get 90 minutes with somebody who mm-hmm. has a myriad of like-minded challenges mm-hmm. 
So like, I think we need community. Like if there's moms with kids with diabetes, then there should be like a one hour or two hour meetup every quarter where you just get together and vent or talk about something that worked or yeah. talk about things you're challenged with. And same thing with, you know, kids that are hard of hearing. I mean, I, I don't know anything about kids or babies or babies with illnesses, <laughs> but I do know that people can get a lot of help by just meeting and just having conversations like this one here. You know, it's, you guys are, you, you guys light up on your stories and you, you have so much to share and there could be somebody listening that's just challenged with the exact same thing. Mm. And, um, it's important to get those support groups going. Because it's hard to talk to other moms who have, you know, in my case, children who are neurotypical and aren't deaf and who haven't been through eight surgeries and who do not have to explain why they wear, you know, their child doesn't have to explain to every other child why they wear a hearing aid. You know, when you look at other kids who have no health problems, you're like, why did mine get everything? Like, you know. So is there any, like, a support group or resources locally for Colin to, to, like, play or interact with other kids that are hearing impaired? I have not seen anything like that, no. Really? Huh. Yeah. Okay. And I see, it's funny because when you're out and about, I see very few kids who actually, it's very rare to see other kids wearing hearing aids. Right. Like, I don't see okay. that hardly ever. I mean, I remember he was playing soccer and in the middle of a game, some kid ran up and grabbed him and we're like, what is this kid doing? And afterwards, we asked Colin what happened, and he was like, he wanted to know why I was wearing this thing on my ear, and I told him I was a hearing aid, and I'm deaf. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, okay, and then the game resumed. Well, at least you were, you know. Yeah. Mm. I think one thing Kate had a problem with when she was first diagnosed, of course, you know, at 11, I don't want to be different. Mm-hmm. And so wearing the CGN, now she wears it on her stomach, but she did wear it on the arm, but it's still visible. Right. Especially now that she likes the crop top. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, she didn't want to be different. And so there is actually a camp, Camp Nokoma, uh, for in West Virginia for type 1 diabetic kids. They can go from the time they're 7 to they're about 15, 16. Hmm. And they have not had a session. Kate was actually coming around and she's like, you know, Mom, I think I want to go. She said this to me last year. I think I want to go because I want to be around more kids that have my condition. And, of course, COVID canceled the camp. They've canceled this year, too, and now she's going to age out. So she's not going to get that opportunity to go. And I don't see any other resources for type 1 diabetic kids in that that pre-adulthood teenage range that she's 15, 16, 17, you know, before they hit adulthood. Um, So I guess, I don't know, I think she knows another type 1 kid from school, maybe one more. I think there were seven when she was at Harper's Ferry. I don't know how many are at Washington, but... um, yeah, so I think it's, I mean, not that I wish that diagnosis, any diagnosis on any kid, but yeah. if we can find, you know, support for them too, that would be helpful. I, I totally agree. So, yeah. Any final words from anybody about anything coming up or, I mean, I, I think what's cool and this is, you know, if you're into it, you could have this parenting podcast as many times as you want to. Okay. I think it's a great topic. I'm sitting here quiet just because we have learning. oh yeah we have the school discussion yeah. daycare discussion the 504 plan in and of itself could be two hours i think i would like to just remind people that like my my child is a child and he has a disability or he he's deaf so he technically does have a disability physical disability um medical disability and 
we have been told by his ENT that if they cannot figure out how to correct the, the inside of his ear and make it the way it, it's normal, to make it normal per se, he will be tied to seeing an ENT every three months for the rest of his life. Right. They're like, when he goes to college, you're going to have to research an ENT like me, who this guy is like a neurological something, wow. something ENT. He's like specialist in his field, in his already specialized field. You're going to have to find somebody like me that he can go see every three months. And then when he's an adult and he gets a job and he moves, he's got to find somebody like me right. that he can see every three months. Wow. And, you know, one of the options that could solve all these problems could be that they could go in and literally fill his entire ear cavity in and he would just be deaf and he could not even wear a hearing aid. Like he could huh. just be deaf. Wow. And they're like, that's not really an option we would choose unless. Exactly. You know, it was just completely to the point where like, we're like, this is not manageable by like any means, I guess. But that was one of the options when he was much younger was we may have to just fill it all in with, I don't know what they put in there, cement, something. Wow. And he would just be deaf and he wouldn't even be able to wear a hearing aid. How old is he now? He's 10. Right. So. That's crazy. Yeah. The, the medical advancements in the next he, 10 years. Like the fact that he goes, um, I've not seen the laser surgery room at, at Fairfax because the past two surgeries, he, we let him choose what, because luckily when your child is young and they have surgery at Fairfax, they, a parent gets to go back to the operating room with them. It's very scary to see all of that. Let me tell you. Um, and you can be with them while we call it, they give them the gas because they don't do the IV or anything on them until they've been, they've had gas and they're kind of like already out a little bit. So they're not traumatized by constantly getting needles. And so I can't imagine having to do what you guys do. Um, and my husband said that, you know, you, the laser room is the far back operating room at the children's surgery wing in Fairfax. He says you have to go past all these other kids having surgery and they have windows in the door so you can kind of see what's yeah. going on. So that's really weird in and of itself. And he says, and then you get to Colin's room, and that room has a black window because there's a laser in there. And oh, there's a special yeah, guy yeah. in there, and that's his job is to run this medical laser and to know how to operate it wow. so they don't accidentally, like, laser a part of your kid's head that's not supposed to be lasered. Um, so, you know, it's just all the it's all these things that we kind of, like, we have to keep in the back of our brain all the, the time that I think about that parents with children who aren't sick or who don't have medical conditions, they never have to worry about. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so lucky you never have yeah. to worry about going to the doctor. And we schedule these appointments. We went in February, we're going on May 17th. We just yeah. know, like the third Monday, every three months, we're going to Reston to see Dr. McKenzie and keeping our fingers crossed. That, and, you know, the last time we went, he was like, well, we have surgery again this summer, you yeah. know. And luckily we're able, they're not, you know, emergency, and we're able to put them off into the summer where, you know, he misses a couple weeks of swimming, and yeah, that's okay. Holy moly! So that's yeah. that's yeah. What what are they going to do as adults? That's a very real and a very well, I have scary. Faith. I have faith because possibility. That's a very yeah. scary question. I mean, 10, 15 years in the future, which is the when real adulthood mm -hmm. hits. I mean, medicine continues to improve. There'll, yeah. there'll be advancements, right. and you got to figure by the time twenty years from now. He probably would not have to continue going. We're hoping that yeah. that's the yeah. case. We're hoping. Yeah. I mean, even in the seven years that he's probably going to get a new hearing aid this summer because the audiologist says that they have come out with advancements in hearing aid technology and she has recommended that he get a new one. So we're probably going to 
be like, okay, we're going to chunk down the however much money that the insurance won't pay to upgrade yeah. the, the hardware, as we call it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Jeanette, what about you? Well, um, I think just trying to get through, you know, through preschool. That's like our next like big hurdle. You know, she hasn't been with anyone except my husband and I in the last eight months, and that's pretty terrifying. Um, so we did a couple tours. We, you know, we we went to the same place a few times. Decided it was the right fit. You know, everything we brought up, they were like, okay, just tell us what to do. Okay. And I was like, all right, this will be good. Nice. This will be good. But I think I'll probably still sit in the parking lot, you know, the first couple of days for sure. <laughs> um, it's only twice a week for like three hours. Um, you know, she'll have her monitor. They'll be able to see it. We'll be able to see it. Um, so I think that'll just give us some more confidence and, you know, maybe let somebody else watch her every now and then. Right. So I think that's our, our next step. Jammer. So at this point, my next step is I'm done being upset about the diagnosis, and now I'm just, I guess, angry. And I'm like, I want a cure. And so I follow a lot of, I follow Beyond Type 1 on Facebook. I follow JDRF on Facebook. I'm currently part of a 300,000 Steps in April challenge. I saw that. I am raising money uh, for diabetes research. So I am 122,000 Steps in already. So I have the rest of the month to get to 300,000. And... Um, you know, I'm looking out for races. Last last summer, we did a, a Ragnar-type race locally that benefited uh, Beyond Type 1. So I'll just continue to fundraise in hopes that there's a cure. So anyone listening, go to my Facebook page, Jamie Cashel on Facebook. Give me money. <laughs> there you go. That's and good. thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, Jeanette, for You're joining welcome. us today. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. All right. This is really good. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>